Good morning. This podcast is brought to you by teachers. God, they're so inspirational, and they don't make enough money, and they don't get enough benefits, and it's not an attractive job financially. So what happens is only heroes end up doing it, people who do it out of the goodness of their own hearts. So thank you to teachers for sponsoring this podcast. Donate to your teachers. uh, Buy something. Buy them school supplies or whatever, or thank a teacher who inspired you, because this podcast is all about um, how people can be inspired by teachers. My guest is, my name is Terrence Hartnett, by the way. I am the host of this podcast. Thanks for listening. This is called Down by the River. Welcome to the show. Um, My guest today is Nick the Poet. Nick the Poet is a friend of a friend. He's a friend of my friend, Pat Hoskin, who got married on April 10th this year in Pensacola, Florida, and uh, shout out to Pat and Haley. Um, great couple. I uh, had a great time. Bonaventure friends, friends from my time at St. Bonaventure University. But for a long time, I kept hearing about my friend Pat's friend, Nick the Poet. Heard about his exploits, heard about his, you know, he's doing different things. He's pursuing poetry. So that was always interesting to me, um, someone who pursues poetry, because I'm pursuing comedy. And that seems, honestly, poetry seems even more difficult of a pursuit, of a dream in life. So Pat was always telling me about his friend, Nick, Nick the Poet. And then uh, a guy came up to me and go, hey, my name's Nick. And I was like, Nick the Poet. And so we really hit it off at the wedding, had a great time. And the, the morning after, we went to a park and busted out a pod, you know? He recorded a pod. And uh, Nick's an interesting guy, and he writes good poetry, thank goodness. Because you know when your friend does a thing artistically and you finally hear it? <laughs> and uh, you're like, oh, thank God, you're actually good because I don't have to fake support uh, for your dream. Uh, so Nick is a good poet and I was interested in talking about poetry. I hadn't really thought about poetry in a long time. Um, since I was studying under my own great teachers at St. Bonaventure University who inspired me to get into poetry, get into Shakespeare, you know, the power of the written word. So Nick and I talked about all that jazz. It was a really interesting interview. I thought about it the whole drive. Um, I, I drove like 10 hours after I did this interview. And I thought about, it, you know, the whole time, He's a great guy. Um, so he's got a he's got a book coming out eventually, and I'll make sure you guys know about that. I'll post about that eventually. But in the meantime, follow him on Twitter. Um, he says the handle at the end of the episode. And uh, thanks for listening. Take it away, Steve. Down, down. I just met you at this. I met you. Yeah, I met you at Pat's wedding. Our, fr- our mutual friend Pat, and I'd heard about Nick the poet for a long time, and I was. And you said, "Hey, I'm Nick," and I go, "Nick the poet." It made me so happy. Do you like being Nick the poet? I do. Yeah. <laughs> I had a mentor in college, and he introduced everyone he knew. Um, he introduced me as Nick the poet, and so it like warms my heart that. And then Pat has other friends where they were like Nick X. Which was like in high school that w- my screen name was X five seven five five, and then that's what like kids on my street called me it was Nick X. Nick X. Yeah. Okay. So like, that was like the Nick X on the pong table. That that was a thing, and so they're like, they're definitely different. Back when you were sinking cups and persons, sinking cups and draining cups, or sinking cups and drinking beers. Oh yeah. Yeah. Those days are beyond or past us in yeah. the basements. Yes, but as a you like you don't mind self-identifying as a poet. You like being that's an identifier. I do. 
I'm proud of it. At first it was cringy, and I thought, I'm not good enough to have that title. <laughs> and there are things that throw poet on the name at, like, coffee shops or... What do you mean, there's people who pose? Pose as, as, poets? as poets, and yeah. it's not a serious thing. And um, there's also, like... Um, there's also slam poetry, and a lot of people these days think of slam poetry when they think of poets. Like, oh, when you say open mic, you must mean that you go do slams. Especially modern poetry. I feel like it's. Mm-hmm. I think if you ask somebody, you'd be like, well, what's poetry like now? And they'd be like, well, it's changed, and now they do like snaps, and they do like, uh, and they do like, uh, uh, you know, I was walking with my friend, friend, friend to the end. And and I'll be all and I'll tree all something like you know like uh, they're just that's, spitting stuff. That's so it. I love. I mean, but I like. There's some slam I really like. I did. I taught like a slam unit when I was teaching, and I did. Uh, oh really? Um, Shake the dust, Anis Mojgani. Um, he's an amazing. I guess you call him a slam poet. They call it spoken word poetry. Which is funny because all poetry is spoken. No, I mean, I guess I guess as opposed to written poetry. Yeah. It's intent. This is poetry intended to be spoken aloud, right? Yeah, it is. It's tempting to be like, well, in the classic origins of poetry, it was always spoken aloud because it was word of mouth. And, uh, like, yeah, but that was, like, 6,000 years ago. Right, but you take, like, William, William Carlos Williams yeah. would not be a spoken word poet. You know what I mean? No, like, no, he wouldn't. He might read his stuff, but it's meant to be on the page, and you can even see the way he's written it. It's kind yeah. of, like, supposed to be. Um, Dickinson, same way. Yeah, right? yeah probably written whereas like shakespeare it is boring to read it's hard to read and then when you hear it hear someone bring it alive it changes it for you it changes it for me i mean like i didn't like reading shakespeare i liked watching shakespeare and i love performing shakespeare mm. it's very typical of my uh, sensibility where it's like where it's like uh it's boring but if you'll watch me do it i would love to do it you know like uh I'd li- if i have some attention on me i'll do it to be or not to be that is the question where there's no brother the mind to suffer those things and there's an outrageous fortune um, I'd be all over it, um, but yeah, the moniker of poet doesn't bother you. No, it doesn't. I've written enough where I am a person who writes poetry, and I'm a poet. I guess it's partly being humble, but it's also taking the craft seriously. It really is. Like, do yeah, but it seems okay. Poets to me seem like priests now, where it's like we had a lot of them before, and now we don't have very many. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious, That's like, why someone gets, like, I'm like, yeah, like, what is a poet now? Like, a 30-year-old poet. Yeah. Are there a lot of them? Young poets? They are, there are, to varying degrees of, like, being serious about being a poet. Um, some of them are in, like, Masters of Fine Arts creative writing programs. Right. And they're like, I'm a poet. But the real test of poetry is, like, when you're by yourself and you have free time and you are just you know you're free-minded things are paid you don't have anxiety about whatever the hell what do you do then whatever you do then that's what you like really are so you really are and you write poetry then yeah i do yeah i do man i I keep notebooks by me i take notes on little phrases that i hear if someone says a word that i like really dig like uh (laughs) i i always write it down and then before i go to bed I have thoughts that will be like really good ideas, and uh, also in in, a, in an interview with Eminem, um, here we go. He said, that, "Oh shit, uh, yeah, my influences go down to like Eight Mile when I first watched Eight Mile. You know, <laughs> next thing I knew, I was on the corners." But All no. right, don't try to be funny. You were telling me earlier, try try to be funny, or should I? I'm like, don't worry about it. 
So then you, the first that. time you made a joke, I, I was like, I'm gonna slam him as soon as he makes as soon as he makes any joke. I'm gonna slam that. you. Okay, wait. Interview with Eminem. Go ahead, go ahead Eminem. Now, nah, but there the really thought? is an interview that does come to mind where he said, "I can't fall asleep if I have an idea. I need to write it down, or else I'll lose it." And he is so right, and it does come back to that. Um, like you have to. James Joyce also um, was noted by some of his friends groups in Dublin because he lived away for a while and then he came back. And then when he came back, he would reunite with friends of his in Dublin, and they. There's a biographer of his, um, I think it was Richard Elman, and he said that it was noted by Joyce's friends that when they were out to dinner, Joyce would go to the bathroom and they they would talk amongst each other and say, like, he's writing down everything that we were just talking about. And I don't know if that means, because partially he would lure some of his friends into talking about politics because he wanted to get the voices of Ireland divided and Whoa. like some some Irish um, during his time were so were so like immersed in the past, like trying to hold on to an identity to the point where it was like keeping them from just being um, like a forward thinking society. And Joyce was extremely critical of that. So he would bring up those conversations at dinner and um, then, yeah, he would go in the bathroom and write it all down. <laughs> and I forget if. Um, after that, in the same biography, the guy said that those friends wouldn't hang out with him afterwards or what, but that's so true, though. Like, you will miss it. And then when when I write my best stuff, it does come from things that I said that sounded really good because you have to capture the natural voices because if, if it's all just from your head, then you're going to sound too much like yourself. And then if you're only writing sort of, like, good ideas that you have... It's not going to work because you need to be able to speak the language. Like, I need to be able to write something that if I were to stop and shut everyone up at my at my Thanksgiving and my <laughs> whole family was there on both sides and I, I was like, I'm going to read a poem, it wouldn't make them sigh and want to leave and be distracted. Like, that test, each poem has to pass that test. And my family's like just straight up like normal, I guess it's like working class people sort of. Yeah. And um, like... If, if they can vibe to it and be like, nah, he isn't trying too hard for the capital P poetry. He really is talking about things. He really is taking note of what's going on. This Like, basically, someone needs to say, like, yeah, someone needed to write those things down. And, like, I, that's my goal. That's great. Oh, yeah. my God. It needs to, like, it, it relates to somebody who doesn't give a shit about poetry. Right? Yeah, yeah. It should be like that. That's so good. Like, I mean, with comedy, I'm always curious what my non-comedy friends think of comedy, who they like. Um... I was with my I was with two cousins on my way back from New York one time. We were in the car and they go put some comedy on. And I played we played I played like a comedy radio station, I think, or something kind of just random. And uh Dimitri Martin did oh, the cool. best out of all the comedians I played. Even comedians I like. I mean I love Dimitri Martin, but like he has like these short, perfect jokes and they made us all laugh. Like more than mm. like Bill Burr or like someone who's kinda of longer form rantier. Demetri Martin hit it, and I go, this is a huge credit to Demetri Martin that he can make me and my cousins, who are we're different people, we come from different backgrounds, we're kind of like not, we're not, I, we're not like, uh, we wouldn't be, I, I want to say we wouldn't be friends in real life, but kind of like, we're not like, you wouldn't group us together in real life. We're, we're, an, we're an assortment of people, and Demetri hit all of us, and uh, I respect that about Demetri Martin. That's a great test. Exactly, yeah, the, yeah, the cousin test. 
um, it became a new metric in my mind. Like, would this pass the cousin test? You know? Yeah, yeah. Like this guy, like it's like you got jokes about you got jokes about Brooklyn and about like you know like and you got jokes about uh, like veganism. Is that going to really hit my cousins who just got off uh, 18, 18 holes of golf? Yeah. After after a long week at work and they're slamming Bud Lights, like yeah, going to like your vegan joke? Probably not. Right, you know right. I mean, they don't know. You talk about gerrymandering. They're not going to like that. They don't care. You know. Don't Whereas know. we might analyze it. And, uh, like, when I listen to some comedy, I'm like, okay, I can see the form where they set it up, though. <laughs> this is one of those, like, one thing I think of, this is really off topic, but, like, a lot of comedians that I watch use the exact same thing. There is Seth, Myers, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, and the three of them use the exact same, um, like, to tee off their joke they will bring up something that is going to be preposterous that and it's usually like about p- politics so yeah. they'll say like such and such senator this weekend said that um this thing and then they'll say like this that's like saying that's like saying that every time i go to the bathroom i have to pull my pants all the way down to my feet and then, <laughs> and then they'll riff all the way off on that and then immediately transfer into the next thing. Yeah, right. And so like most of the joke was not about the, that guy at all. No. Like about the weird situation that you brought up where you pull your pants all the way down when you go to the bathroom. Yeah. Riffing on that stuff. Um, and that format, though, of like, that's like, that's like, and then the oh comparison yeah. is the it's joke. Like I said this. Yeah. It's, yeah. And I got, I got tired of that. And I realized that John Oliver, who I love, um, I don't know. I'd like to hear him go off on other things, but and I also can't tell if it's their writing team. Obviously, they have Obviously writers. It's the writing. It's the writers. Yeah. Like if I really think about it. Yeah, I know anyway. some of their writers. I know a guy who wrote, writes for Colbert. Oh no shit. Yeah, okay. He's tired of writing Trump jokes. Or that's I guess I talked to him a couple of years ago. He's tired of writing Trump jokes. I bet. He's bored of it. Yeah. It's like yeah, he looks funny. He says dumb things. Can we move <laughs> on, please? <laughs> he's a jerk who says annoying things, and he's got bad hair, and his skin is orange. Headline news. Well, what do you say? I thought we'd start with the poems. Would you, would you care to read? Okay, yeah. How do you feel about reading in general? I love reading. It depends on who I'm reading to. All right. But. What's your general attitude when you're picking a poem to read? Or, like, how are you feeling right now about reading, sharing? I can always read the same ones, though, because they're, they're really me, and they're really what I focus on and but I don't know like if I was to say if my dad was to be like send me three poems right now <laughs> that's a little different because it's my dad and I want I guess some part of me like wants to be validated in his eyes and oh really yeah yeah me too but to friends in general uh, or just anyone no 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 like I gotta read. I gotta read the ones that I'm most confident in. Like, yeah, this is my shit right here. This Play the hits, bro. Play the hits. This is a new one. How long are your poems? This I kind of want to know what to expect going in. Okay, this first one is a page. The second one is like a paragraph kind of thing on the. Great. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Hit me, and we'll talk about them. We'll talk about them when you when you finished. Well, Ladies and gentlemen. What's your last name again? Eckerson. Ladies and gentlemen, visiting poet to Down by the River, Nick Eckerson. First poet on the pod. First poet on Maybe the pod. Maybe the last. Um, and we were in a park in Pensacola, Florida. And that's the setting. We're amidst 
these uh, live oak trees, which I have grown to love. And it's a beautiful day, a Sunday after a wedding. The clouds have cleared, no more storms. And Nick, whenever you're ready. This is called Asphodel Front Yard. And that plays on Asphodel um, Meadows, which in, uh, it's like purgatory. Oh, Asphodel. All right, Asphodel, Asphodel Front Meadows. Yard. So it's Asphodel Front Yard. I hunch into my car seat. Wait a minute, one more time. I hunch into my car and sit. Seat's cold. And this is when I justify being awake. Remember, I needed a job and applied, interviewed, was called. It was exciting, a number I didn't know, but I did know. I agreed to a schedule, parked for the first day, checked my face, orientation of tasks, formality, expectations set, co-workers later explaining realistic means. So having gotten up, gotten into uniform, coat, then car, now here, some acceptance. The house across the street, the sun blanched pale yellow, and I was born early one morning and haven't been a morning person since. The leaves skittering across the outdoor patio carpet and the sun shining on the decorative yellow fish cages like golden honeycombs shining in the sun. The white fences blocking nothing from getting out of anything, but there to lineate the line to the door. I conclude the par- the primary action taken in a front yard is mowing the summer grass, which leaves lines fine, bothering autumn grass, pushing off a sheet of leaves bunched up at the curb like blankets at a bed frame, and it's left all winter besides mail carrier's boots. The tradition, coming home to decorations, walking to the door proud. Car door, side door, back door, bush framed. We live here is what it says. And we are part of the spirit. And that's what we do. It's dress up for the day. House dressed up for the season. Those whose front yards are not decorated seasonally, what do they say about me? That I live among dispirited people. (laughs) Who do they stay bored for? Is a question still unanswered and three albino squirrels run by. (laughs) Driving the way to work, I scope out people's scenes, the rugged faces in the town truck window next to me. Then the men in the parking lots waiting around a work truck, dressed in the most regular clothes and smoking. You cannot picture them new, the coats and shirts. These gas station, fire station, police station, gas and electric men talking make me feel part of We're up, going in the morning, stiff with sleep. I wonder if everyone in every car around me is happy with their job, or if theirs is for now. And then I rest knowing that people have their reasons. I have this fantasy, and it's the country at war. And I get called and report, and they hand me a list. I could do any job they put me on with time training. I find it hard to live content. The urgency is mine to bring to life. Mine to plan or coast. I'm convinced that my parents blessed me to be the kind of guy I want to and can be. I'm aware that coffee and chew won't change me. (laughs) That my 2C movie list may not reveal wisdom either. It's my past thoughts 
banked up in notebooks. They justify the moments. I'm not doing what I love to. I honk the car and seagulls fly through the parking lot. After work, I reflect back to the morning. I think myself sometimes dramatic. I have my moments, as they say. Oh, that is beautiful. And I am quite relieved, honestly. You know, I'm relieved. Uh, thank you very much for sharing that. That was beautiful. What was it called again? Asphodel oh, Front Yard. Asphodel Front Yard. <laughs> now, yeah, my first reaction was relief at uh, the fact that you are a competent poet at all. You know what I mean? Like, I, there's a, I'm like, you know, grad schools will let anybody pay them to be <laughs> in the poetry do. program you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. like and so i was relieved at like your use of language and i was relieved at your powers of observation i guess as much or more than anything else like the vignettes that you things that you're seeing and you're bringing them to life with the with like with the imagery and the poetic language the guys smoking the clothes that you can't picture new yeah um brilliant you're looking at a yard i mean like all also like I think you bring people in up top with like the we've all been in the car not wanting to go to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you're not a morning person since you were born early in the morning. All that stuff. Yeah, like so I'm happy that it was good. <laughs> all right. And not I get like that, though. bullshit. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> I get like that. so funny. Like it's like my friend Mike is obsessed with the guitar. He plays guitar and like when I hear him play well, I'm like, oh good, thank God, because we're 30 and. Uh, you know, if you suck, like it's that's really hard. You know that's on I mean? you. That's on you, man. That's really tough. You know. Um, so uh, I guess so, I'm also wondering, yeah, uh, what what job are you going to? Where were you at in your life when this is happening? Where were you? What job was that? Oh, um, was it you? Are you the speaker of the poem? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes it easier. But I also imagine myself being older, like as if I have a house and um, I'm in a neighborhood. Like, my house is in a neighborhood where it's, like, a typical suburb, and maybe it's autumn, and um, everyone has, like, um, like the houses basically are dressed up for Halloween. Or it's winter and... Um, Christmas. Yeah, yeah, everyone's got Christmas themes. And, or it's Easter. Basically, it's, like, a definite season. And I don't think I say which exact season it is, although I do mention the sun shining and that people are standing outside, so I think you would assume that it's, like... Um, yeah, like late fall or right. Or something. Uh, yeah, but when you said decorated and dressing up, I was imagining like you're picturing these houses are the, what the kind that decorate. Like if you bother with your lawn that much, yeah, you're gonna bother with some some lights in December. Okay. Um. Uh. So okay. yeah, yeah. Where were you? So yeah. Um. Talk to me about how this is written and what what yeah. Like where where are you at in your in your life? So this, I was working at a UPS store. Not to be confused with UPS, the drivers who were showing up. It's separate. It's actually a chain. Um, the, basically, like, the UPS stores are privately owned. And, um, like, yeah, the drivers come and pick stuff up. But I slap, um, I shouldn't say it like that. But I, basically, like, people bring their packages. And I weigh them and figure out how much it's um going to be to ship it wherever they're going they also have like the lock boxes or i'm sorry the p.o boxes there and um, i can make faxes and copies and you know you can plug in your usb to like a computer right it's where you print shit off yeah, yeah you print shit off and like all of that stuff is my job and you didn't want to do that <laughs> that wasn't your dream <laughs> i picked that job because i was like 
I can do all of that so well. But the thing about it is that I'm a people person. And um, anyway, but I had been graduated from getting my bachelor's for, I don't know, like five years. And so I just started to go back to grad school. Yeah. And I was like, I need a for now job. And this is going to be the best one. It's near my house. Um, live with my parents. And it was just as the pandemic just before it started. Oh, this is new. This is this year. Last yeah. year. Yeah. Some of the some of the observations like about the three albino squirrels, I had I had a thought like when I was like twenty three, I'm thirty one right now. I had a thought when I was twenty three, I was like, I need poems. I need a poem out there where like for no reason in the middle of it, three albino squirrels run by. It made me laugh. Yeah. And it has to ha- and it has to have nothing to do with anything I was just saying before that. But they need yeah. to run through the poem though. To me though, yeah, it felt like um the it felt like you just recorded the thoughts of a very poetically minded person okay. who's about to go to work. Like it's like although no one thinks that beautifully, no one thinks in those words. <laughs> yeah. But that's the that is the I mean, that's what we do in comedy too, is like it's like, imagine I'm a guy who's shooting the shit with you, but I'm the funniest person you've ever met. I mean, like, I'm well prepared with, like, that's the illusion that you want. As you go up on stage, you go, man, guys, and a lot of comics will do that. They, they say, like, on the way here, I saw a guy holding the Dunkin' Donuts coffee cup, and I thought, Dunkin' Donuts? Who dunks their donuts in there anymore? You know what I mean? And it's like, that happened two years ago, bro. That happened two, it's not happening on the way to the show. Yeah. Um, but they love the, the appearance of, stream of consciousness the idea that this is occurring to you so the albino squirrel helps the albino squirrels because those squirrels going by it's like you're having all these profound thoughts and there's three albino squirrels and uh, very little comment on that it should be its own fucking poem let's be honest (laughs) if you see one albino squirrel that should be its own poem titled albino squirrel um with a date but um i like the idea this guy is so distracted I miss this. I just realized I I fucking miss analyzing poetry. Um, I'm so happy to uh, to be able to do this. Um, right, the albino squirrels, and it's like it's just that's just that's just one more thing that's coming across his consciousness as he's sitting there. Yeah. His, he's sitting there in his car in front of a lawn, or he's like getting ready to go. Yeah, he's getting ready to go, and that's the, how it starts. Where you're in your car and you're going, fuck, another day at work. Here it comes. I actually wrote it about, I initially wrote it about the front yard in a standard suburb, and I was like, let's write the whole thing, let's let's map it out, let's write like a whole, let's get the whole vibe of a front yard. Hasn't been done, I can do it, yeah. I live in an essential suburb that I think characterizes, <laughs> like if mine is so like this, then others must be so like this. So when people hear it, they're going to be like, yeah, That's I know my exactly front yard. what you're talking about. White picket fences that are dividing nothing from nothing. Yeah, right? they, yeah. They're not actually useful. as a, They're not a fence. The whole fenceness of it has been stripped away, yeah. and it's pure decoration. <laughs> it's it's so only bad. there to signify that you have enough money and care to have a fence. Yeah, yeah. Right? It doesn't do shit. Yes. It's not like those horses and sheep that are being penned in. Which you know is, what I mean? yeah, we're, what it started. Or like in Tom Sawyer, he's like painting the fence. Maybe that was where we go back to... White picket fence. White picket fence. Well, but, yeah, yeah, I mean... Yeah, subtly in there, too, you know? Right. Like white picket fence. The, right, the, the heavy symbology of the white picket fence stands for so much more than mm. a fence, right? Yeah. It's, it's become a uh, stand-in. Is it a metonymy? I don't know. It's like when the people say, I want the whole nine yards, you know, the white picket fence. Mm. And then we all know what that means. That we, we see the fence, yard, lawn, kids, 
dog, car, other car. We see the whole thing. All you have to do is, yeah, so it is metonymy. It's a, it's a part of the thing, or maybe it's a synecdoche. A part of the thing standing for the whole thing? I don't know. I, I went to school a it long is. time ago. It is. It's one of those two. Um, like when you say, all hands on deck, or lend me your ears. And you want, you know, I'm asking for the ears, but really I need all of your attention. Yes. Your whole body's attention towards me. Um, but I couldn't write the poem all about the front yard. When I got down to it, yes, I can paint the portrait, and it's literally just, um, it's just a portrait. It's just a photograph in words of, and I have one like that. I can read, it's just about a parking lot, and the whole thing is literally just, what am I looking at? And it starts and ends with descriptions, and but it, 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 it is a thought that f- starts and then finishes. Anyway, uh, but when I kept rereading that, I was like, no, this doesn't tell a story. Okay, yeah. will this keep attention? Let's keep adding. Okay, now what am I doing that I'm staring at this front yard? And I was like, what do I really want to say, though? And I was like, what, am, what is my life really? What has really happened like over and over and over? And I was like, I'm going to work, and this is just classic me. So, again, I have to be like, this has happened to me so many times that it must be happening to other people. And if it doesn't, maybe I'm just a freak uh, case. <laughs> and which I, I don't know. But no, I was like, not, you know, course. either way, it has to be a reliable. There's thought. little that's more relatable than a guy who has to go to work and doesn't want to. Yeah, I yeah. guess you're right. Yeah. So I, I went with life. that. And then as I went, I just kept, okay, now it's time to break out some of the things that I have in my back pocket or in my notes, I should say. Okay, now it's time to go through my old notebooks and be like, okay, how can I incorporate this? So that... Okay, so there is a sort of a uh, collage aspect to it. Yeah. You're bringing old... Like the Albino Squirrels is from 10 years ago, but you're pulling that in. Yeah. Because now it's time to, to, uh, to uh, you know, use that note that yeah, you have yeah. to... Into- like, there, Gary Goldman talks about, like, he's like, I had this joke about Narnia forever, and I couldn't use it because no one cared about... The Nar- Narnia or any of those movies or anything like that. And I end up using it in a longer joke about a grocery store. You know what I mean? Like, he brings in this old one-minute bit. He pulls it into this new 20-minute bit. Whoa. The 20 minutes is new. The one minute is old. It's kind of, it's the exact same thing you're doing. He's oh, yeah. he's sewing that into the tapestry. The quil- He's quilting. Quilting is the b- better metaphor. Because quilting is like, you got a bunch of old blankets that are tattered, cut off all the good parts, and you make a square. And then that square goes into the quilt. Yes. The quilt is a... A new blanket made of old blankets. I'm firing this morning, man. Uh-huh. You got me pumped up. Um, okay, wait. How about the title? That pretentious word for purgatory. Yeah. What is that word? <laughs> I've never heard it before. Asphodel Meadows. How do you spell Asphodel? Wait, hang on. There's a guy going by on a four-wheeler. Yeah, yeah, he is. This It'll is... be fine. It'll be fine. Th- that stuff doesn't pick up that much. But a four-wheeler in Pensacola, Florida, in a public park. Sounds about I hope right. he gets some air. Nope. Oh, that would he be went over a bump. Scary. That was sweet. Asphodel, A-S-P-H-O-D-E-L. Oh, he's making some sweet Nailed moves. it. Very cool. Asphodel Meadows is... Uh, Holy well, shit, actually, don't come at me. Oh, my God, he's coming at us. Okay, We're In safe. the initial draft of the poem, um, I was going to say something about like looking at the clouds, and this is where people go who don't do anything amazing in life but don't do anything bad either purgatory yes anyway but yeah asphodel meadows is mentioned in i think the odyssey i should really know this it's kind of embarrassing maybe we should edit this part out but let me know uh asphodel meadows is 
is the word for what we now refer to as purgatory. And I don't know, going back into like the etymology of it or where it comes from or the chain that links back to it exactly. What does it mean to you, though? Like, where, yeah, like when did you encounter that word and how did you bring it in? Thank you. (laughs) I did encounter it because over the summer I. I make jewelry and I listen to podcasts while I'm doing it. And I, I did a whole series on the Odyssey. And I was like, A I, podcast series? Or I don't understand. Oh, they talked about it. You listened to a podcast about the Odyssey. About the Odyssey, okay. not the audiobook of it. Right. About uh, it. But I basically, I said to myself, like, I don't know, I'm 30. I need to read this. Haven't read it yet. I got. I need to know more about this. It needs to be fresh in my mind for me to write and pick up classic ideas. Yeah. And like larger, larger, larger things to work down from. And so I did that. And then I heard in the course of that about what as what Asphodel Meadows are. And I liked the idea because the in between is really a part in life that I feel like I've been in for so long. I feel it. Yeah. It's a state of anxiety. Right. The philosopher Hegel describes it in his, like, um, he has a, a ladder of, basically, it's like from his f- phenomenology. And um, anyway, you're always in between something. Like, there's two versions of self. There's self and self-consciousness. And then, well, there's self and consciousness, consciousness and self-consciousness. And no matter what, like, in order for us to evolve into the next state of being... We're always, there's who we are and who we want to be, and neither one is ever, ever satisfied with, like, as we are right now. Right. Okay, you got one foot in the future, one foot in the past. And and being present as I am right now, just as I, who I am as a person, as I am, as I am, I'm not comfortable with that. I know who I could, should, would be if things are better if I had done this and oh man this freaking job and look at these people over here I wonder if they're happy with their freaking jobs right. oh this guy these people over here they're standing next to these work trucks and they they're, they're so essential and what <laughs> the fuck am I doing I'm not like these people are, I could go back to like the 1930s and they similar their grandfathers would have been standing at the same damn trucks and doing and what the fuck am I doing and so like that sort of anxiety of like who am I what's my purpose in life leads to like a a little bit of a crisis and that I wanted that so badly to be in there and I was like I need the in between to be in betweenness well suburbs are so that anyway they're so I mean people have compared the suburbs to purgatory before <laughs> okay you know yeah. right but yeah, like yeah. uh they're between they're not it's not a farm it's not rural and it's not urban they're suburban it's somewhere in between and also people are kind of like in a sort of uh stasis Mm. betweenness uh waiting for something i mean you're there waiting for the next big thing you're waiting i mean this and then like yeah what it, for this year everyone's like living at their parents houses and stuff like waiting for or they're <laughs> moving to some temper like uh our friend pat moved to rochester from new york city and it's like um he told me uh i go is that is that what's that is that a permanent move he goes it's not permanent and it's not temporary that's what uh-huh. he said. Uh-huh. Like it's for a year and uh, maybe more, but uh, that's all we know for now. And that's yes. what people are doing that a lot of that shit right now. It's like, this is what it is. I mean, like I live in a van. It's like, this is what it is for right now. And we'll see. People keep asking me about my plans for for New York or whatever, go back to New York. And I go, I have no idea. I mean, I'd be lying to you if I told you a date that I move back to New York or that I'll stop it, you know? Asphodel. Like an infidel for ass. <laughs> Infidels. 
Asphodel. We're out for it. Asphodel. Infidels. If you're not infidel, you're out, Fidel. Um, See, this is a communist podcast. Fidel Castro, it all leads back. Oh, yeah. We mentioned Marx before we began. Yeah. You're going to yell at me. I made a and joke. Bernie Sanders. Hey, what the fuck, bro? <laughs> I'll do the. I'll be making the jokes. Nah, but that was a good one. I I'll think. Make- <laughs> all right. <laughs> Do a uh, a gay porn called Infidel. <laughs> it's about a Muslim guy having sex with Fidel Castro. He's so he's beard. infidel, and he's an infidel for having uh, sex with a man. Infidels. Infidel. It's also a Bob Dylan album I have not listened to. There's a lot of Bob Dylan albums. Yeah, we listened to Highway 61 last night on the way back from the wedding. Yes. Yeah, that was fucking killer. Yeah. That that one's uh, front to back perfect. Bond on Bond as well. Oh, yeah, wait. Um... What got you into poetry? Let's let's go from the beginning. I had a girlfriend when I was nineteen, the true love of the like basically the only girl I've loved with my entire heart, and um, I was also a freshman in college, and I wanted to be a nurse, but I couldn't. This is getting to the answer to your question, by the way. I don't care. But <laughs> I trail so much. Um. Okay, so these things are happening. I'm like, I want to be a nurse. I want to be a male nurse. I want to be Dr. Eckerson. This is happening. Do or die, I'm going to be a doctor. And I just want to be successful so that I can, whatever. I didn't think it through. In my first chemistry class, I could not get through the actual, you know, you have to, like, transfer ions. And that was where I got hung up. I just could I don't know. I didn't have study groups that were there for me, or I didn't seek them out. Yeah, you didn't take to it. I did not. And... Uh, it was meant to be. It was an act of God because I said to myself, okay, I guess I'm not being a nurse. I also don't like looking at people who are bleeding. And on paper, yeah, I can look at the body like a big machine and examine all the parts and what do they do and what do they need. But anyway, so I'm taking this other class, which is definitely just your standard English 101 and was definitely responsible for introducing me to Raymond Carver and some of William Butler Yeats. And did Carver do poetry? I don't think he did. Okay. Ernest Hemingway does have a book of poems, but Raymond Carver may or may not have... No, Raymond Carver motherfucking did write a book of poems. What am I talking <laughs> about? I just haven't read it yet. Damn. But you're talking, you like you enjoyed the writing of Raymond Carver. Anyway, yes. Yeah, I love his short stories and... The Cathedral. Yeah. Got exactly. it. The blind guy. Got it. What we talk about when we talk about love. Oh, I want to do that one too. I should um, Watch that. We should read that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, he has, like, ones that where it's literally just, like, he's sitting there drinking, and he has, a like, a, a bunch of stuff on his lawn. He's got a lawn sale going and, like, just a standard garage sale situation. And he's, this couple comes up, and the whole story's about that. And I was like, that is so simplistic, but he nails it. He fucking nails it. And then I was like, you know what? I do view, I've always viewed the library as this great marble set of steps that reach into the sky, and there are these holy, holy shells with these holy names. Always viewed it that way, but always thought that, like, okay, I will properly sit down and read Hamlet in the same way that I will properly sit down and listen to Abbey Road and Exile on Main Street, and I will very properly listen to, like, Zeppelin Three and Zeppelin Two and, um, freaking uh, physical graffiti those are all up in the sky to me and i will listen to those so what I does just, that mean up in the sky to you i don't understand it's like the great library in the sky i don't know I, it's like this big rite of passage that like an essential journey of the thinking man goes through and for me that just seemed like oh yeah i'm in college 
University, capital U. I'm going to learn the universal arts, and I'm going to start with English. But also in the back of my mind, I knew that this girl I was dating and the poems that she was talking about, oh, you haven't read, you haven't read any T.S. Eliot? Nick, you've never read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock? <laughs> oh, my God. We're going to sit down and read that right now. And she got the book out. And my life is measured out in coffee spoons <laughs> or whatever, okay. right? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scudding across the floors of silent seas. <laughs> and she got me with that. And it wasn't even just like, ooh, I got to learn it to impress her. It oh, was, is that we shall go then, you and I, while the, the evening is spread out across against the, the sky, sky like a patient etherized upon, upon a, a table. table? Nice. The half deserted streets, the muttering retreats of one night restaurants. And okay, that started it for me. And. It actually made our relationship a little bit better because then it turned into like, oh my God, give me a book to read. Okay. Actually, in order to warm up to us to start dating, she told me, she just casually mentioned that she loves Wuthering Heights. So I got the book and I read it in like a marathon weekend. Bronte. Heathcliff. Yeah. yeah. To the point where I, I missed some of like the things that she actually loved about it. Because <laughs> you read it too fast? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so that's that's where it all started. And then I just started buying books and I transferred my major all right yeah anyway that's how i started you transferred your major to to being other english studies or like what were you you had you end up with like a multi you said you end up with a multi something multidisciplinary. yeah i ended up at a, i ended up at rochester institute of technology that's where you go to study poetry yeah yeah i went there guys building rockets and one guy <laughs> reading J. Alfred brubuck 100 kill and well there's a shakespeare scholar there anyway past president was like this school will never have an english degree program there's no reason for it at the time mit was just building theirs so the guy was like if mit has one they can go freaking over there but meanwhile in today's world like virginia tech has one and anyway so they still don't have one to this day thanks to yeah i see okay but then and then how about writing poetry was you was that happening there at all right at rit I had been writing little comics when I was younger, and because I loved Captain Underpants. Me too. Yeah, freaking awesome, dude! And I just, uh, <laughs> I just, um, I just had we had some Captain Underpants in uh, our like out of shelf at home, and then I was like, no one's reading these. Like the youngest brother of mine is is twenty five. I mean, like no offense to Captain Underpants, but like no one's enjoying these. So I took them and put them in the little free library by our lake house, and they were gone in. Four hours. Whoa. They let, and I was like, some kid is discovering Captain Underpants right now because it's, it, you're getting into it because it's silly and stupid. Oh, but really, it's it. like fun. There's wordplay. I remember the anagram bit they always do. They, they, he'll yeah. go up to a sign and move around all the letters <laughs> and make a different message <laughs> with the same letters. And it's like, that's just a lesson in the beauty of language and words, right? And like the thing it he ends was. up, the things he ends up making out of the sign are like it's like a goofy thing. It'll be like instead of like lunch today is meatballs. It'll be like it'll be like all failures have urges, like something weird, like some random sort of um, thing that has you know because they have to stretch it because they only can use those letters. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. okay, so you were into that. In the action scenes where you flip through and it was like flipomatic. Like flipomatic, so it was fun. Self conscious book. And, yes, uh, it was a little bit meta. Dude, it's yeah. killer. It is killer. Yeah. So I, I wrote those. I uh, like My buddies and I would like staple pa- pages together, and we would make a bunch of those. 
And then... When you were a kid, or how old were you when you were writing these Cat Underpants derived uh, stuff? Maybe like 11 and 12. Fantastic. And... But I didn't really... I wasn't like a writer all the way through. But once I started reading poetry, I said to myself, basically, I am the thinking man. I can try this. And I not, I'll never have to show it to anybody. But I definitely had the urge to try it. And... I wanted to write. I can't really explain it. It just happened. I don't really remember a moment. Okay, right. <laughs> I had to. It'd be weird it. if there was one moment. Yeah, that'd be odd if there's one. Nah, some people do have a moment. Though. But often those moments are imbued with extra meaning over the telling of it. Like the mm-hmm. same way when a couple talk, talk, couple talks about meeting each other. Yeah. And it really, yeah. it's like, yeah, you met a girl and you were attracted to her and you hit it off conversationally and then you made out it's like yeah. that happens all the time but when it's your wife you make it like i saw her from across the room and i just couldn't take my eyes off her. and i told my buddy i go i'm gonna marry that girl yeah um even though i've already i've said that about many women already i'm gonna i'm gonna marry that girl i'm like i'm half kidding but if i did end up marrying her it would be like a great story right yeah, yeah. hold my drink I'm gonna, I'm gonna go i'm gonna go meet my future wife gotta be i'll be right back yeah, yeah. um but those i mean then and they have people have the same relationship but like when i first picked up a guitar that was the that was it from then on, you know. Like I knew anyway. So they do have those stories though. Like the, it's and it becomes David a Bowie documentary. Self mythology, self mythologizing, and that's important. You know, it's good to have a story about yourself. You tell yourself. Yeah. Um, but um, in terms of writing, like undergrad, and then in those years after, were you did you consider yourself a poet then? When did you consider yourself a poet? Two things. Number one, I believe in God. And I believe that God put this guy named Stan McKenzie in my life. He's the former provost of RIT where I was going. Yep. So I moved majors over, and I took three of his classes. I took, he's a Shakespeare scholar. He's a Shakespeare scholar. So I took Shakespeare. He was a scholar of Mark Twain as well. And he was a scholar of J.R.R. Tolkien because geeks at RIT wanted him to teach Tolkien, and no one was doing it. And he told the English department, we need this class. I'll do it as <laughs> the <laughs> movies were coming out. And anyway, but I took his classes, Shakespeare... It was like the comedies and histories, and then it was also like the histories, or I'm sorry, comedy and the histories, and then it was like the tragedies, romance, tragedies and romances. And anyway, I went to his office after class several times to talk about the plays. I was fired the fuck up, and he, his deep voice, he would come to tears during certain passages of it, and he's very genuine. He just had a big heart, and his his delivery, he would do these voices of of all the. Because he had been to Stratford upon Avon and done all the all the Shakespeare plays, and he'd seen them wow. all throughout like the '60s, '70s, '80s, and '90s. He's seen them all done in different ways, and so when he taught the classes, we were seeing a man in his golden age after a lifetime of teaching. He was he was the provost in administration under the president, but he uh, when he stepped down from his position as provost, he went back to teaching, and he was just like this golden um, guy. Anyway. He was really interested in the fact that I was extra interested in, like, all the back reading. Well, what informed this play of Shakespeare's? What was he reading at the time? He mentions, like, the Jew of Malta in this one play. Should I read that? Should I... What other plays... Or, um, or no, T.S. Eliot mentions the Jew of Malta and this other thing. Should I read that? Anyway, and we were going all over the place. And I would get the books that he told me to get and I would read them and I would come back to him and be like, I, I read parts of these. I read this. I picked this one up. Which one should I pick? Which one should I read all the way through? And so, and then I told him, well, I have some, so like at my 10th time of meeting him, 
after class, I told him that I write, and I said, can I email you some of these poems I write? And he said, I don't normally take writing from students. And it's not because I think that you're probably going to be bad at it. It's just because there's uh, creative writing staff and, oh, fine. You know what? Okay, send me what you got. Send me a couple of poems. Why don't you do this? Send me those poems, and then I'll let you know what I think of them. I, I'll do that for you. You know what? Yeah. And then I do want you to meet this other guy, though. His name's John Roche. He's, uh, he's in the creative writing department. You should take a class with him. So you had creative writing department in RIT? Um, it was like something that you could uh, concentrate in. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. It wasn't a, I, I wasn't a major. It wasn't a major, right? Right. Gotcha. Okay, so then you. But once he read these poems of mine, he thought they were cool. So then he was like, so now it evolves from like, okay, I'm gonna maybe read them and then I'll um, refer you to this other guy based on, because he was ready to shoot me down. He told me later that if I was bad. I was, he was going, he respected me enough to be honest with me and say, like, I don't think that you really have, like, the talent to, to write. I think you should really focus on scholarship. He was ready to do that to me. Wow. Did he tell you that? Yeah, he did. Wow. He did. And, um, but then I was also skeptical. I was like, is this just because he likes me, though? Anyway. Yeah. And so he was like, I will help you edit these poems. Fine. And, um, the Shakespeare guy. The Shakespeare guy. Not the creative writing guy. Okay. And the Which Shakespeare is- guy, Stan, he is like this big, like, 200-something pound guy. He wears, over, he wears like, uh, suspenders with his shirts, and he has, like, this big Santa Claus beard, sort of, and he has these, like, wise man glasses. Respect. <laughs> I love those guys. But it reminds me of Rick. I mean, it reminds me, like the, the the idea that he would move, move to tears by Shakespeare, which is something he's read over and over again. It's his job. He has to wake up and go to work. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he still loves it reminds me of Rick Simpson, who we've been talking about because that's, that's who me and Pat had at school, who we love. Shout out to Rick Simpson. Um, like he's just he's passionate. And honestly, I think that's the most important thing of teaching is modeling passion for the thing you're trying to teach them. Because passion is the only thing that's going to get you. Like unless you're looking to get the grade. Passion is the only thing that's going to motivate you to study this shit, to like actually put your put the work into these words, you know. So that's so true. Yeah. So he modeled passion for you, and so he's editing. He's he's agreed to edit your poems, which is unusual. Okay. Yeah. What happens next? We he, had, he edits them. You hung hang out. Yeah, we formed a relationship where he would say like, "Okay, now come to my come to my office whenever you have time, so we could talk about them." And then he introduced me to this other guy in the creative writing department. But I found that Stan and I, or Dr. McKenzie at the time, um, he already got me. And so he would just start asking questions about, like, okay, where do you work? What's your family life like? Tell me about this part in the poem. So he was invested. And then he goes, all right, well, I have these things that are called salon saloons every Friday at my house where someone comes over. Uh, one of the professors in the English department or the philosophy department cuts hair. So we get hair, we do haircuts at my house, and then we all have drinks. And That's the, so funny. And the entire department comes over, and I'd like you to come over so you could meet some of my colleagues. And get a haircut. And, <laughs> well, I did not get it. I declined to get a haircut. What was and your hair like at the time? <laughs> it was, like, really freaking long. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I wanted Jim Morrison hair, but it just became a bush. I looked like Brian May. I have, I have I have the same thing. You'd be surprised, but I thought dry growing, growing my hair out, and it just keeps growing on top of itself. Yeah, it doesn't fall. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't fall. Thank you get a fro. Yeah. Okay. So I go to that and I meet them. Salon Saloon. I like it. They're having drinks. 
Oh yeah, well, I'm drinking Manhattan. Your undergrad, your undergrad drinking the professors is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At first, he did kind of eye me and and say like, "Well, there's uh, hors d'oeuvres over there," and he had this really nice house right down the street from the school because he was the provost. So I guess he built a house near the school. Yeah. Anyway, he introduced me around as Nick the Poet, and they called me Nick the Poet in the hallways after that. Love and it. in my classes, I would meet these professors, so I almost felt like I was this golden child student who knew the professors ahead of time. Yeah, you're friends with them, right? And Yeah, and, like, and then um, he asked me if I was comfortable coming over to his house like while we were in his office. He's like, well, I have to go home. I have to eat. Um, you're welcome to come over to my house if you feel comfortable with that. If not, don't worry. Uh, I'll see you back here. I said, no, I forget how I said it, but yeah, okay, I'll come over. And then we started just like hanging out, having drinks. And so then he would say like, okay, bring a bunch of books over. Uh, let's read poems together. And I would say like, fuck yeah. So I would read some, <laughs> I would read some of my poems and then he would, he would bust out. Okay. I have these books and he would, oh my God, Nick, I haven't read this poem in 25 years. And, <laughs> and so he would read these poems to me and then. I, he just instilled that. And then one time um, I emailed him at 1.30 in the morning and I think I had gotten out of work and at the same, and the, during the same day, man, after one of my classes, I had asked this really, really, really fucking cute girl if she wanted to hang out. And she was like, yeah. Whoa. After she was like eyeing me a little bit and her name was Andrea and she had blonde hair. Beautiful. Now we There's a, a oh, another bike going mini by. Bike. There's a mini bike. I used to have one just like that. Yo, yeah. And we would uh, race it around my house. And my parents, I have no idea why they let us. Because my uncle gave it to us. Such, such an uncle move, right? Here's nice. A, here's a mini bike from the '80s, dude. And yeah, it's yeah. Like, and he goes, I don't even know if it works, but it was in my it was in my mom's house. I don't even know if it works. You guys can try it if you want. It started right up. We had to just grease grease the chain. And we didn't have a lot of land. We had like one acre, but we just rip it around the house. And uh, we both we all fell off of it. I like net. I got like gnarled up on the on my on the gravel in my driveway um but yeah i mean we can't not comment on the bike going by all right so the cute girl andrea she's blonde and she's hanging out with you and you're hanging out and you're a senior so you're coming into your own huh you must have felt like a man i think i was like a sophomore were you 21 this all happened in one year man yeah wow yeah and that's pretty young to be hanging out with professor at his house i feel like that's like uh Yes. Something else. And I asked the right questions, and I knew when to shut up and just listen and take notes. And I would wait for people to leave to talk to some of them one-on-one and ask them about, I'm really into Shelley. Do you know, Professor Engstrom, which poets Shelley would have been reading in his time? Well, yes, Nick, if you're interested, I I guess I could follow up with you. <laughs> you know what? Give me your email address. I will send you some if you're really interested. This sounds like so much better than actual school. <laughs> it, I didn't know that. I had I had high, high expectations that college would be this. I don't know. I pictured like Harvard is every school. Every school is like Harvard Yeah. in my head. It ain't. And so I was like dying to make it that way. And the classrooms... You've got a reverence for this stuff, like the idea of the library. Pat told me the first thing, you you came to Bonaventure Campus, and the first thing you went to go look at was the library. We did. Which is a great... Yeah. He did say that. That's so cool. Which is a, which is a good... I mean, like, I respect that. I mean, also, Bonaventure's got a great library. I, really, I love it. It's like a cathedral. 
um, of books. Anyway, so you have a reverence for this stuff. You thought that it was going to be like Harvard, and it wasn't, or you made it like Harvard. I kind of did. Once I got invited to these, I began to see that the intellectuals stick together. And this guy, Stan, as provost, he had made investments in the liberal arts department, and he changed it so that couples could be hired together. Basically, if I, if we brought a yeah. scholar from New York City, the new school, and we and they were married and they were like, well, my wife is a professor, um, I don't think I could move there. He convinced the president to allow the college to hire, okay, well, why don't you bring your wife over? Let's interview her too. And without being biased, we will see if she's fit and we will take you as a package deal. And they did that with two couples. So smart. And those two couples were like awesome professors. You wouldn't even know that they were together. And I had one of the husband and wife, and then I had one of just like, I had this professor, Dr. Terzakis, and she um, was married to a guy. I never had him as a professor, but anyway. So they loved him. Right, because he, cause he made their life possible. I guess so, yeah. yeah. He seems like a good, uh, yeah, he's not thinking in just the three dimensions of the school. He's got bigger pictures in his mind. But yeah. This guy, your buddy. Rick? No, wait, no, that's Rick's, Rick's my guy. Your guy. <laughs> Stan. Stan, uh, Dr. McKenzie. Um, yeah. Man. I'll call him Dr. McKenzie because I don't know him that well. Please. Yes, Dr. McKenzie. So then, okay, so then you graduate, Did you? and you did, you were writing poetry, and you graduate. And then what happened, man? Did you didn't you didn't what happened after school? After school, I thought okay, I better not try to be a professor because all the professors at RIT that I talked to said, "Nick, I became a professor at a very lucky time. I had lucky circumstances. I caught the outgoing administration and they believed in, you know, to the text examinations whereas today's world is more social issues we're now talking about women and gender studies we're now talking about the african-american presence in several different uh pieces of classic literature we're examining them by these new angles yep and if you want to fit in you are really going to have to struggle to be um basically there's like new historicism made possible in, in part by um, Stephen Greenblatt, who's a Shakespeare scholar who wrote a great uh, Will of the World, uh, uh, basically about Shakespeare and his life. Anyway, and so there are competing schools, but they're not directly competing. And those scholars tend to stand out only if you've written something amazing. Otherwise, right. these schools are expanding towards the direction of, well, we now need women's studies, women and gender studies, or, you know, if those departments are together. Critical race theory. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. As it applies to even stuff before they, you know, like, right, Shakespeare wasn't thinking about race very much, or he was thinking about race in a very, very of his time way. But, like, the, yeah, the way we think about race is not really applicable. To, I mean, it is whatever. I don't know. That's the thing. It's a, it's a new it's a new wave of criticism. Exactly. New historicism. Right. Um, you take it, you're trying to you use our modern lens, using the modern lens. So, you, and you weren't interested in that, or you didn't? have the background that you would need like you don't have like you need to be like like a women's studies major or like a critical race theory person to well, to do it the way they want to do it now either that or i would have to wait for one of the old guard to retire and pick up where they needed the blank space of someone 
uh, not that new historicism was like needed at every college, but I don't even know if that's the right term to be honest with you. But okay. anyway, no so problem. I left off at like, no, I like these older scholars. I like the my professors who are showing me what they were, how they build their classes. This the scholars and critics. I like reading the ones that they suggest to me. These are like fundamentals in literary theory. And um, not just Harold Bloom either, getting really into like, there's a Milton scholar. Okay, over here there's a Yeats scholar. You should read his books on Yeats. These are fundamentals of how he breaks down his poems. And when we look at thematic um, trends in William Butler Yeats today, we refer back to like M.L. Rosenthal or whoever. And um, so I was like, I'm going to be that professor. And... Also, I'm a straight white dude from the suburbs, and there's a part of me that's never going to be able to talk from experience about some of the social issues that are now becoming, like, added positions at college. Yeah. This is all my mindset, so I'm starting to paint a disillusioned picture, but this is what was going on in my head. Okay, so if my professors are telling me that it's going to be impossible for me to get a job unless I... Also, I need to be able to be first in... um, Colleges are also moving towards um, composition... So if I want to get a job as an adjunct professor, I need to be able to teach English 101, which is composition, which is also rhetoric. Rhetoric and composition is its own field. I got books about that. I got real off the grid real fast. I lost faith. I believe that, like, personally, I believe that God led me to all the places that I should have been all the way through. But for some reason, when I graduated, I got real fucking disillusioned. And I was like, I got a job at... Uh, Wegmans, which is a supermarket and a deli. It was like a for now job. Great supermarket. Yeah. Yeah. And then I got a job. Real, one, real ones know. Yeah. All the real heads know. Yeah, yeah, real ones out there. You know about Wegmans. They rep Wegmans. Yeah. It's our best. It's one of the best things to come out of the Northeast. Yeah. Honestly. Go ahead. So you're working at Wegmans. So I, was, I was working there, but then I realized. Oh, hold please. Sorry. You needed to be a company man. Yeah, this is a great day, man. It's perfect. It's yeah. so nice. Okay, wait. So uh, you were working at Wegmans. <laughs> That's where we left off. Yeah. After school, for now, job trying to figure out what you're going to do, and it wasn't going to be academia. Yes. So I figured, you know what? I never wanted to be the guy who takes a gap year. Well, let's take the year. Take let's gap year. Figure it out. I didn't want to jump into an MFA program because I guess for every job, there's like 300 people with an MFA, Masters of Fine Arts and Creative Writing, shooting for the same job. So my professor said to me, um, Nick, we really don't have a lot of experience in today's world. We're all sort of nearing retirement. You should talk to such and such person. And then they would be like, okay, you are kind of an anomaly, but you could. Anyway, I went to the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics in Naropa. Where's that? Boulder, Colorado. Okay. It was built on... I think maybe Allen Ginsberg had something to do with Jack Kerouac's will and trust. Okay. And anyway, he built this school. The Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics? Fuck yeah. What a phrase, man. What a phrase. Okay. So wait, you said that was a, that's, a, that's like a two-week thing. That's short, right? I went for two weeks, but is it? it is a month. They have a month-long summer program at the school okay. where all these visiting writers, the best of whoever they can get, artists, they all come to, pre- to present their stuff, but they also teach a one-week or month-long class. 
So you could only go for one week or you could go for the month or whatever. Right. And you sign up to, with, the, with the visiting writer who is going to teach a class while you're there. And so I got a dorm. I went there. I freaking met all these people. Um, we went on this rooftop bar where we kind of chased around the visiting writers to figure out what bars they were going to. Yep. <laughs> I tried to get a seat at the table, but everybody else was trying to get a seat at the table next to them. And I, Who was the writer that made you want to go? Who'd you buy, like, who'd you buy a ticket for? You know well, I, mean? I just knew it was the spot to be, number one. Gotcha. I asked myself the question, what would a serious, serious motherfucking poet do right now? Like, let's get really into this. Let's commit... I need to go where the people are. If I'm going to do this, where would I go? And that was one of the obvious answers to me, especially because I love Howell and I love On the Road at the time. And I'm like, hell yeah, let's go do this. Yeah. I also love Gregory Corso, um, Ferlin Getty, who recently passed away. I wanted to meet him, probably for selfish reasons, because I wanted to show my poetry and have him publish a City Lights book on my behalf anyway of course and oh city lights out of san francisco yeah i met a guy who uh got into that scene i met a guy on this podcast who got into that scene i'll tell you i'll tell you what episodes you can listen to it but because he'll because he published it he's a he's a writer and author but um city lights published his shit whoa yeah he lives in a cave in in moab utah his no, name he is marlo no yeah. he doesn't yeah yeah listeners Let's go back to that episode. Yeah, let's pause and listen to that whole episode. It's called Marlo is a Caveman and an Author. <laughs> That's what it's called. His name's Marlo. His name's got he's got a he's got a human name too, but he's he's gone by Marlo for a long time. I just found out about the podcast that I'm on now and I am going to go back and listen to that. <laughs> so <laughs> you should too. That was one of the first episodes was awesome. Oh, that's killer. Yeah. yeah. So um All right. So, so I I have some friends from RIT who I'm also still hanging out with. Um, There's this guy who is a sculpture artist with found object art. We get together every Sunday. I bring books and poetry and CDs over. We put some albums on, smoke a wine, and (laughs) we um, open up these art books. And he taught me so much about photography, composition. Look at the way this lays out on the page. Nick, man, you ever wanted to get into graphic arts? Check these artists out. Hang on, let me go get the book. So I got this guy named Steve Caswell. He lives with his, like, 80-year-old father out by the lake charlotte or actually he lives in hamlin doesn't matter and i'm hanging out with him and we're staying up late into the night the guy's a talker but in i don't boulder? Care. give a shit sorry no, no i'm not left sorry. boulder i'm sorry I'm got it no along. problem no problem no problem so this, 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 this phase of your life is you're kind of like you're a beatnik you're fucking you're in the scene i love you're mixing up with other people who do other kind of art had to man Can you guys don't do that together. i respect no. that i mean it doesn't they, they hang out with musicians i guess but there's not enough I, I think it's like if it should if it's an art like the, like we say it is supposed to be an art, uh, we should be with other people who do art more. I think, but we kind of kind of tend to stick to our own. Mm. But so in Boulder, you saw some things, but like you still you're like pretty you're not going you're not getting into academia, right? You want to be a poet? Not poet. yet. So I said to myself, well, poets and artists in general can have day jobs. Like look at William Carlos Williams. Look at post office. Right? Yep. Or no, he's a doctor. He's a doctor. Um, There's no one different one who was a post who was a postal worker. Yes, right? the mailman was. Well, actually, Charles Olson was a mailman, but uh, also Charles Bukowski was a mailman. Side note: You wanted to be a mailman. I I was 
first I worked in billing at the local utility company. I was in a call center. I got yelled at by people, but I'm too much of a people person. So I would get these old folks on the line and then I would just end up having a conversation with them and I would have to wrangle. It was like a massive fish on the line. Someone wanted to debate their bills going back like eight months. So we would go bill by bill and figure out why they were behind. And they would argue the whole way, hoping that one of us would give up, break the line, snap off, and that they would either be let off with a lesser payment. But I didn't have that power and it made me sad. So I was like, I can't do this. Yeah. So then I applied to be um, at the post office. I did some of the winter help around Christmas. And then I was like, I'll apply to be a carrier. And then I'll just get into the warehouse of a motherfucking pension. Yeah, dude, that's a good that job. Pension, yeah, gotta get that bro. state benefits, yo. <laughs> state benefits, yeah. Gotta yes. get them bennies, yo. Good bennies. So I signed up there, I got hired, and I'm also of the opinion that at this point I am the thinking man. Um, I, I can interview well, I talk well, I can tell them pretty much everything that... I need to say, yeah, yeah. Not, not tell them what they want to hear, but I can, I can represent. You've got good verbal acuity, which gets you pretty far in it a lot does. of stuff. So yeah. does it's great. So in, in order to become a mailman, you become a city carrier assistant for three months, and then at the end of that, if they like your performance and you're moving and you're hitting the freaking boxes and you're doing making good time, it's all about your time. It's all about um, how fast you're adapting to. You're a, you're a sub, so you're going wherever they need you that day. It's a new route every freaking day. That's crazy. And pretty much, unless unless you get lucky and you get stuck with a station, and then they keep you and they fight to keep you. Um, anyway, I don't end up making it, and I didn't want to anyway. There's too much pressure. You're telling me. They tell me like you're, you're trying to you have to you have to like log in at different mailboxes along the way, and you they're do. tracking your. They're tracking your how your progress, and they're calling you and going, "Hey, you're not you're not going fast enough. Why? What's up?" <laughs> yes. Which is what's happening. It happens at Amazon. It happens. They push you to the point where you're, you might as well be a robot. They're pushing you all the way to the point that you're no longer a human being. You, you, they're using you for your labor, you know? And slavery, man. Some of the people I was working with did stop and say, I can see it in your eyes, man. You, you get here every day and you look so terrified and you are scurrying back to your truck to load your packages. You really need to slow down. You really need to find your, because there's no way, there's no one way of like, here's how you organize them by your route. Like you have to adapt and either you get it or you don't. You're either a born a mailman or you're not. <laughs> it's so true, man. And in my head, I'm like, nah, anybody could do this. Like, if I, if I had to go to war tomorrow and they were like, you need to be a mailman, it's wartime America. This is I, your poem. This is your I poem, right? Rise to the give, occasion, give bro. Give me a list of, yeah, give me a list of tasks if we were going to war. Um, but we're not in war, so I don't not. know what the fuck to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's peacetime. What are you going to do? All right. So, um, anyway, but one of the nights that I'm with my friend Steve, the found objects um, sculptor, he... Is showing me photographers. I find this guy named Edward Bertinsky, and he takes photographs of like massive pit mines. He goes to Beijing and the manufacturing districts. I don't know if they call them that, but manufacturing district sounds. And anyway, like these massive um, warehouses where all of our little components are being manufactured. He gets up on these heights and he takes pictures of like massive places. But the name of the book is Manufactured Landscapes. 
and he I think he's a TED talk I watched the TED talk I was entranced I was like my poetry needs to be centered in place manufactured landscapes the romantic poets that I love Edward Brzezinski Edward Bertinsky Bertinsky okay he's a Canadian gotcha and um, he he showed me that there's an open space in art that is not being covered and that's man-made creations but treat them as if they were natural beauty right manufactured landscapes okay he didn't actually have that i put the dots together of like all of samuel taylor coleridge some of william wordsworth in the preludes um in the prelude um but especially lord byron and percy bysshe shelley they both traveled through all of Europe on their grand tours, and they both wrote these massive works, especially Child Harold's Pilgrimage and Don Juan, which is Lord Byron. And he writes about the natural beauty that he sees, but he also talks about his expectations. He goes to Greece expecting what he saw and, and like, reverence. Yeah, I yeah. identify with his reverence. Can I hit that? <laughs> I identify with his reverence. And... He goes to these classical antiquity places and he talks about the great wars that happened here. But look at it now. It's kind of in ruins or he compares things. But then he also weaves in a story about his main character. It's amazing. And I'm like, I want to do that with the entire country. I want to crisscross the country and come home and write about the poetry of place. And whoa. So I start to write about um, like I have a poem that I could read. It's about um, it's about. It's called After Hours in an Industrial Parkway. In an industrial park. After Hours in an Industrial Park. Wow. And um, the entire thing is like, it's about the medicated green lawns and you don't expect to really see. Um, basically, it's just businesses. It's, just, it's not a place. It's a thing. It's not a place. Nature is a place. A park is a place. Right. But it's also a thing. We have controlled and taken control of the land. We have designated things as things. Nothing is no longer just a place. Yeah. Like, this mountain is not a mountain. It is a wildlife reserve. Or it is now a (laughs) national park. It's a thing. It has a purpose. Like, a parking lot is not a fucking place. It's a thing. It's a tool. This is where we park cars. It is paved. It has spaces. This is a tool in our society. It's, It's not... So I start to view things as like a manufactured landscape, and oh. I realize that like no one's picked that up. And if you're listening to this, do not steal my idea. Don't I'm steal the idea. Still working on my book, and uh, that's gorgeous. <laughs> Is that that's what you're working on? Yeah. That's, oh my god. That's the thesis of my. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear the. Let's hear the. Um, want to do the uh, nighttime in an, in an industrial park? Yes. I love that idea. I mean, that places aren't places anymore. They're things. Even a mountain. Right. Mount Everest is no longer a mountain. It's a designated area. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. All right, hit me. And it, it is also like a, Whenever a you're struggle. Whenever you're ready. Oh, boy. Where are we here? This is Nick reading Nighttime in an Industrial Park, and it's part of his new series that you will not steal based on Edward Bertinsky's manufactured landscapes inspired by he did photographs and poems or just photographs just photographs just photographs okay good so that's that that part's covered now we need poetry about this about this kind of stuff it begins 
a neighborhood of offices and inventory. So that's the first line. A neighborhood of offices and inventory. Warehouses left dim with the workforce out for the weekend. I walk along looking to see if the moon's in shape. A dogless night. All business. Each company is in character here. Its logos, colors, its statement to its people. The decided design. Inside of the labs of economics, policies, pitches and piles on desks in the dark. At this hour, the corporate office is underlit from beams behind bushes, and the finance manager's blinds blow in the vent unit breeze. Oh. The parking lot lights run free through the trees onto the farm fields as a fog rises from the allocated rain runoff ponds. <laughs> Those fields let the light across. A plastic bag, too, when the wind hits generally across the construction sites nearby. It's another development. And the medicated green lawns have no footprints from shoes. There's a photographic attraction to tiny scenes after hours that brings me in. The feeling that no one has been or will be again is allowed. It's the indifferent perfection, almost off-handedly there. Like men in suits in the city at noon, there is no invitation to imagine a gardener coming, combing around in neutral hours of the day. Sorry, coming around in neutral hours of the day, combing the lawn, buzzing over the bushes. Or the reality. Tanned hands and faces, high-vis safety green vests. The gate falls first, then mowers that pivot, rip around, loud, louder, then it's all white noise. The offices seem to be an endless retreat. Something in the way of seeing beach houses on the boardwalk close for the season. It has been such a resort from the anxiety of the campus walkways to me and the suburban main roads, highways which pass airports and empty lots, where cars ride up on you, pass on the right and the left if you're driving the limit, if you're slowing down too, too slow to turn right, where we pass each other as cars, where I've often been the passing car. Somewhere far enough away is the second part to this scene, in the bedroom neighborhoods, set in suburbs, deep into tracks and lanes, deep into cul-de-sacs, deep from the hub gas stations and supermarket capitals, all the plazas bending and stretching out. One car for the overnight, two for the store, three to stock shelves, and four to wax the floors. In the master bedrooms by now, the alarm clocks wind down to their programmed moments. The thermostats tick. The air ducts shift. Invisible dust poofs up without a wheeze. Standing still, I hear the trains bordering the area. Those long-haul 15-minute traffic-clogging, track-changing carts. I hear highways and drains. Cooler heater systems circulating on and off. All as, the se- all as the security lighting motion monitors scan to extents. These buildings are my peers, the homes of businesses, bases of online markets, midway points of manufacturing, the support systems in the far-reaching anatomy in the body of a business, which exists at once in many states over countries circulating between counties, I'm not in the park to be offered inside. Me, happy to be outside of a campus, unidentifiable from a student body. Me, outside my set shifts and set hours. Tonight I am self-employed. That life is my own business is enough. 
leaning against a power line pole in a flat, burnt grass trapezoid patch with the street lights on the face of the curb, the rooftop AC unit vibrates off, and then the throbbing pair of transformers on the pole harmonizes with the white noise of the buggy air. One is not invited into a business park, an industrial complex. Not invited like 240 volts, broadband, cellular, satellite, and natural gas is invited. They've all been hired. Note the inner peace of walking around a quiet spot, out of the face of the usual duty. I am able to think with all of the window-lidded eyes closed. Oh my god. I'm able to think with all the window-lidded eyes closed. You got such a sense of rhythm. That one, that one, I've, I'm, I'm really proud of that rhythm. That's fantastic. I appreciate that. I, I, sometimes I edit little parts of it. Window eyes closed, window lidded eyes closed. I'm still kind of playing with it. You're still working on it, playing with it. Um, yeah. That's gorgeous. And it feels, I mean, like I used to work in one of those places and it's like, so like what happens at night? At night, it's no longer anything. It's not nothing. It's not, and like you're not invited to this place. Like no one's invited here. It's no one's home. It's an in-between place. And then like there's a corollary to this workspace. Like this is the yin, and the yang to this is in in a hundred bedrooms. In, you know, within a, a hundred miles of yeah. this place. Yeah. Like with the, the alarm clocks going off, it's like they're all attached to this place. Mm-hmm. They're all attached to this place, but they don't even know it. It's kind of, or they don't. They do know it, but I mean, like they're all like you know. Uh, in order for this place to exist, a bedroom community must exist somewhere nearby for them mm. to be sleeping. This is, this is only half of their life. Oh my god! Um, I mean, when I when it first started, I couldn't believe like we are now doing poetry about industrial parks. That's why we still need poetry. Hell yeah! Because it's like those places like we need poetry about this. I mean, it's like in our minds, like poetry is this four hundred year old thing. Yeah, and it's like because that's what we study but there there's still the same need for it what okay i also was like damn poetry's important and then i was like but no one thinks it's important mm-hmm. right i mean there's a poet laureate of the united states mm-hmm. there's somebody who reads a poet poem every time some new president gets inaugurated there's someone there's a there's yeah. someone who does the poet uh, does, does they re- do a poem yeah every time there's a new president there's a poem but we still we don't give a shit about it what's the, why is poetry important why is poetry important? Not rhetorical. Asking you, Nick, what do you think? I mean, it's a big question. Poetry at its best is heightened language. We talk all the time, and I even have, like, two voices. I can talk in the classroom, and but I can also talk just like how I talk, like how I talk, talk. Yeah. And um, But poetry is the heightened voice. It's one up from even our best, and it... It doesn't have time to stop and write the entire short story. It doesn't have time for the whole novel. That's what sets it apart. It, it begins with a thought, and it finishes that thought. I learned that early on, so that's how I edit my poems. Does it finish the thought? So poetry is important because it is a language unto itself, but we have to be able to recognize it when we hear it and yeah. say, like, that's a thing. That's, that, that, that is poetry, and it has a rhythm but it's important because it says something that we think we don't know how to say it. We need a poet to say it. Ralph Waldo Emerson says that in the poet, uh, his essay called The Poet, 
and he, he does say that like we need a poet to come along this is a new country i call on the poet out there i i wait for the poet that i think of i wait for the poet who we need as a country i wait for the poet to come and speak in a new language with this new country and this new set of scenery this new american voice to like catalog walt whitman catalogs things and the purpose of the poet is to come along and provide like the language for the poetry yeah that is here and we're not going to see it until we hear the poet say it Right, it's a necessary service. It's essential. We need, like, yeah, Emerson's like we have, we have, we need American poets. We we have the European poets. We need American poets to talk about this new space. Yeah. So and then once again we're in a new space, and now we need 21st century poets to talk about this 21st century shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, 100. God, it's beautiful. That's it. I I'm in the middle of writing uh, my thesis, so this is really fresh in my mind. And is your thesis this? this same idea of the manufactured landscapes it is yes because my thesis is um part so it'll be part of it'll be you're leading up to the book yeah, yeah. i want to i my book isn't ready but my collection of poems will come out and it's going to be published by this press called foothills uh foothills press they are in the finger lakes it's this guy named michael zernecki he's and, put it, gonna put it out it's gonna be a thing you can buy yeah yeah all right nice he he uh, binds them with like this cool string thread and but he's gonna let me choose like the I like to think of it like an album. He's gonna let me do the album cover and the nice. liner notes. And yeah. He's gonna let me do like the photographer. Um, I had a photographer friend of mine, this girl that my brother dated. We stayed in touch, and I was like, "Can you follow me around? Can I come pick you up and I'll drive you to these places that I need my picture taken in for a future book of mine?" And she was like, "Okay." And I think I paid her though. So and you had the photos? I did pay need? her money. Yeah, yeah. You paid her money. Like I'm on this big, big tree street, and where my aunt lives, and like the the trees form like a big roof over the top of me, and I'm standing there with like Washington Irving book in my hand. I I don't know if you could see the title, but. Yeah, I got all up into what it. What book? Uh, oh, this one's a collected works of Washington okay. Irving. Nice. But he was an upstate New Yorker, sort of, and um, yeah. And uh, so I like to fancy myself that like I'm just gonna use that when I become a famous poet. <laughs> <laughs> you got the po- I've ever had the photos. Yeah, same way. I already have the headshots. You know, as soon as they want to put me uh, yeah. up on the big screen, I have that. You can just use this photo of me. Yes, um, man. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Same I can thing. See it. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, whatever. Yeah. But like, you had the photos first, right? But we were running out of time, so I want, uh, uh, I'd like to ask you: to, Is there a, is there a call to action for the audience? They listened to this for this long, ninety minutes. They've listened to you for the, talking this long. Is there something that you want them to do? I mean, obviously, you're going to have to let them know where to find your stuff or whatever. The the listeners of this podcast, the you know, whoever they may be. Welp, a lot of my writing I'm a little shy with because part of me is an extreme perfectionist, so I don't have it up on a website. I have a Twitter account. It's at NickThePoet, N-I-C-T-H-E. P-O-E-T. You can find me on Twitter. I write little tiny poems. Um, I do post some, like, standard Twitter stuff, but if you scroll around, you will just see more and more tiny observations. My poetry is yet to be released in a book, so if you follow me on Twitter, um, I will be posting about publications and books. Um, 
You can find me on Facebook as well, Nicholas Eckerson, E-C-K-E-R-S-O-N. Um, for now, that's what I'm going to give you. When um, when I finish my thesis in a month and a half, uh, the book will hopefully come out this year. So I will post links for that. Yeah, baby. When that happens. I do an occasional poetry reading, and hopefully we will be posting the video of that on, on my Twitter or on my Facebook account. And you can always message me there and email me, and I can um, you know have a whole conversation with you, or I could send you some of my writing. Um, yeah, so. if you like it, let them know. That's what, like artists need the artists need compliments. Like comedians, we get uh, we get feedback constantly. Um, verbally through laughter and also people are talking to us afterward afterward, but like um, and I need that to keep going but poets don't get that so you know send Nick a message if you like the poems yeah because they you know artists need this stuff to to get up out of fucking bed in the morning it's true what about a non social media call to action someone who liked your stuff tonight today as they're listening what could they do what should they do what do you want them to do don't give up if you've read a couple poems in school or in your spare time or if you've heard a poet, like a slam poet, and you think, like, ah, poetry's old. Don't give up on a couple where you think, don't stop where you think I've seen it all. I know what poetry is. Keep going because, like, the poet for you is out there. Something has been said, even in another century, that is what you're feeling. And it has been written. You just need to find it. They're waiting for you. Oh my God, that's true. And I found I did find that as an I'm lucky to have been an English major and have read that stuff because like you're like oh my God, a guy from 300 years ago or a guy who lives in a different country feels the same way I'm feeling right now, and yeah, I feel yeah. less alone, and that's a great feeling. Yeah, it is. It is. We do need to stick together, man. Yeah. The opposite, in in addictions counseling, they say the opposite of addiction is community, and yeah, the opposite of addiction is connection. Oh my God! Those two things, and but I think the opposite of like depression and just uh, like hopelessness is connection. So you got it's important to stay connected and yeah, really connected, not just Facebook friendship. Really, real to have real connections. Yeah, yeah. yeah. be real. All right. Um, was there anything else I missed? What was something else? Anything else? We got all the info out there. That's it. Nick the poet, man. Thanks so much for doing it. I really, really loved loved it. Loved meeting you. Same to you. Yeah, brother. Nick the Poet. Pretty impressive. Pretty incredible. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Check out Nick on Twitter. And uh, thank you very much to Rudy Schultz for designing the logo to this podcast. Rudy Schultz is a graphic designer who you could hire. And Steve Gerard did the theme song to the podcast. Steve Gerard has a band called Crown Blue Music with my friends Lucia Whalen and Jenna Gephardt. Um, and it's pretty great music. I recommend listening to it. Um, thanks for listening to this podcast. And if you have the time or the gumption to do me a personal favor, um, review the podcast. Put five star a five-star review on this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to. Uh, or failing that, or if you've already done that, which I really appreciate, um, give us a shout out on your social media, on Instagram, put it in your stories, you know, like tell your friends that you like a podcast because that's how podcasts get spread, you know, by word of mouth. Cause, um, there's no, there's no Johnny Carson for podcasts. All right. Thanks gang. See you next time. <laughs>